Well, in the year 2000, my parents decided to uproot our family from China. So our family jumped on a plane, we crossed the ocean in pursuit of the American dream. Now, little did we know, New Zealand's not really America. But you see, there is a New Zealand version of the stream, isn't there? Wikipedia tells me that the New Zealand Dreams is composed of a house on a quarter acre section, at least one car, very modest, a pleasure boat, a batch, and holidays at the beach. Does that sound about right to you? Most of the time, you see, we, when we see people who sort of made it, who are living that dream, um, we kind of respect them, don't we? We kind of like, oh, you know, they did it, they made it, they got there through the hard work, through the sweat of their brow. But you know what grinds my gears? There are some people in this world, some people who seem to enjoy the good life when they're opposite of good. They cheat and sabotage others for their own gain, and then they make millions and billions of dollars, but they don't pay their taxes. Recently, I watched a documentary on the Panama Papers. If you don't know about the Panama Papers, it's the largest data leak in history. It revealed the names of the richest people around the world who were hiding their wealth in Panama in order to evade taxes. So uh, on the list of names that's revealed, you have people like Vladimir Putin, no surprises there. You've got football stars like Lionel Messi, even my childhood hero Jackie Chan. It's kind of disappointed in that. But, you know, just to give you a bit of uh, stats here, $3.1 trillion was lost annually around the world to tax evasion. $3.1 trillion. To put that into perspective, did you know that it only takes $65 billion a year to end world poverty? So these rich guys, they could easily end world hunger. They could lift all the third world countries out of poverty with the snap of their finger, but they would not do anything. So what happened after the leak, you might wonder? Can you guess how much money was actually recovered? A measly $1.2 billion out of 3.1 that they're cheating out of. They got a slap on the wrist, and they just walked free, and they kept living that dream. So I asked, why did these selfish people, these greedy people, why do they always get to enjoy the good life? Why do they get to do whatever they want and get away with it? Where is the justice in that? More importantly, maybe, where is God? Where is God when the bad people always win and the good people lose? See, injustice, that's what we're talking about here, it's not a 21st century problem. It's actually a problem as ancient as the Bible. Thankfully, the Bible does not shy away from addressing it. So today what we're going to do is look at a man who lived 3,000 years ago. That's a long time, right? But we're going to see how he wrestled with the issue of injustice. But before we do that, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that in this broken world that we live in, broken by sin, broken by our own rebellion, you have not left us alone. You have given us your Son, You've sent us your spirit, and you've given us your word. And Lord, today as we look into your word, we just pray that, Lord, you give us your spirit to open our eyes to be able to behold the wondrous things that are in your word so that we may grab hold of the wonderful hope 
that you're holding out to us in your word. Thank you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Psalm 73, written by this man named Asaph, a bit about Asaph. So he's an Israelite believer. He's a Jew. He's a member of God's covenant community people, the Israelite nation. So he has a very special job, you see. He, his job was to lead the people of Israel to worship God and glorify him. Isn't that a great job? It's kind of what we call here magnification at EV. So you can kind of picture him as like a Ryan Green lookalike, you know, with a big Jewish nose and a big beard. I think Ryan would have liked that joke if he was here. For the most part, Asaph lives a very good life. He's godly, he's faithful, but like everybody else, his life is hard, his life's tough. But then you see, he notices some people, some people in the world just get it so easy, don't they? They don't get miscarriages, they don't have fights with cancer, their pipes don't burst, their cars don't break. Look with me at verse 6, starting from verse 6. Verse 6 to 8, Asaph says, they are arrogant and violent. They oppress others and they are malicious with their words. But not only that, not only do they oppress people, look at verse 9, they even set their mouths against heaven and they ridicule God. Why hasn't God struck them down with lightning already? Not only do they seem to escape justice, look at verse 12, it says, look at them, the wicked, they are always at ease always increasing in wealth. Everything they touch turns to gold. Prosperity seems to tag along with them and follow them wherever they go. I wonder if you've got a person in mind that fits exactly that profile right now. Can you feel Asaph's frustration? See, Asaph isn't just frustrated at the wicked. Look at verse two to three, where he says at the beginning, as for me, my feet almost slipped. My Steps nearly went astray, for I envied the wicked. I envied the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He isn't just frustrated at the wicked. No, he's envious at them. He wants what they have. Friends, I don't know if you're familiar with this poison called envy. It's, this, it's that bitterness that eats you up from the inside out. It's a thought that keeps plaguing you. Why am I always the one to draw the short straw in life? See, if I, um, before I met my wife, Kim, I was a pretty miserable failure when it came to relationships. Um, and in a season of singleness, when I was grieving my failures, along comes my good friend. He starts dating for the very first time at age 27. And in three months, he gets engaged. Eight months after that, he gets married. Less than a year, he goes from single his life to happily married. I'm like, what? <laughs> I was so envious of my friend. I was bitter at him. Why does he have it so easy? Now, some of you might say, oh, he had good luck. He bumped into the right person at the right time. You just, yeah, you had bad luck. I don't believe in luck. You shouldn't either. <laughs> God's providence we believe in God's providence. But that, the, the thing about God's providence is that sometimes it actually hurts just a little bit more, doesn't it? When you think about it, it's not chance that's dealing this hand out to you. God is. Have you asked these questions before? God, 
Why do you favor others more than me? What about everything I've done for you at church, all the things I've served and all the money I've given? What's the point, God, to be so faithful to you if I'm always the one to draw the short straw? What do you do when it feels like it's God who's failed you? Well, let's see what Asaph has done. Look with me at verse 16 to 17. Asaph says this. He says, I tried to understand this. It seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. Now, this is a very good rule of thumb. When you're frustrated with life, go to church. Now, Asaph didn't go to church as we know it. He went to the God's sanctuary. He went to the temple. And it's at the temple that he sees three things. And these three things change his perspective on life, his perspective on injustice. So the first thing he sees is the destiny of the wicked. In verses 18 to 19, Asaph says, Indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors. So, God's, so Asaph sees God's judgment is coming on the wicked, and they don't know when it's coming. It's going to come suddenly. It's going to spring upon them. So even though it looks like the wicked will thrive and prosper in this life, don't worry. They're not going to escape God's justice. At any moment, God might bring them into judgment. It's a scary thing to be the wicked. Now, you might say, I'm so glad I'm not the wicked. I'm a pretty decent person, you see. This is where the Bible challenges our thinking, doesn't it? So the Bible has a very different definition of the wicked. It has a much broader definition of the wicked. The wicked isn't just the worst and the worst. It's not just the most despicable people in the world. The wicked is anyone who rejects God and disregards God and keeps turning their back on God. And all of us have been like that. See, Jesus once told a story to illustrate this, didn't he? So he once told a story. There's a rich man who had a lot of land, okay? And his land was so productive. He had an overabundance of crops. He couldn't even fit all his crops in his barn. So what did he do? Well, he gave it away. Yeah, nah. <laughs> he hoarded it. He stored it up for the, you know, for the next year and the year after that and the year after that. So he thought to himself, I've made it. I can retire early now. I can take it easy. I'm sorted for life. So far, so good, right? It almost sounds like the New Zealand dream. What does God say to this man? He says, you fool. This very night, I'm going to take everything from you, including your very life. You might hear that and you say, God sounds very scary. <laughs> and you were right. It is a scary thing to live your life rejecting God, disregarding Him, and to suddenly meet Him in judgment. At that point, there will be no more mercy. But friends, God is holding out mercy to you right now, right this moment, because God does not delight in the death of the wicked. Look at, verse, look at Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. God says to His servant Ezekiel to go tell them, tell those Wicked Israelites. He says, tell them as I live. This is the declaration of the Lord God. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. 
Repent. Repent of your evil ways. Why will you die? Friends, if you're sitting here today, and have you been living a life of rejecting God and disregarding God? Look, this is the hour that God is holding out mercy to you. But an hour is coming. The hour of God's judgment is coming. And none of us here, we really know how much time we have left before we go face our maker. Frankly, honestly, I could be there today. But you might be there next week. Every new day we get is a day where we've got to give thanks to the grace of God, where he's giving us more and more time, more and more opportunity to repent and turn to Jesus. So don't put it off thinking, look, I'm only 30. I've got heaps of time. I can make my fortune first, turn to Jesus in my old age, be sorted for life. Friends, with your last breath goes your last opportunity. Make with peace with God now. Don't presume on God's patience. Don't be the rich fool disregarding God. Give your life to Jesus today. So you see, Asaph, he sees the destiny of the wicked to face God's judgment. But then he makes a remarkable statement in verse 21 to 22. Let's have a read there. He says, When I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I was stupid and I didn't understand. I was like an unthinking animal towards you. Asaph confesses that he's been like an animal to God. What does that mean? Like a puppy? Not quite. See, the culture around us wants us to believe that, you know, we human beings, we're not really that much different from animals. We're kind of just the next iteration of the evolutionary process. But the Bible holds out a very different paradigm, doesn't it? From the very beginning pages of the Bible, from the pages of Genesis, we are told that we are not like animals. We are like God. We are created in the image of God. We are created to worship God and to bear his likeness. See, one author uh, linked worship to likeness in this way. He said, ah, we always resemble what we worship. Which means if we worship God, we will resemble him. But the sad story of the Old Testament and the sad story of our lives, honestly, is that people keep worshiping idols. Idols like the golden calf. Have you ever wondered why the Israelites kept worshiping the golden calf? It's not just once, not just in Exodus, but also later in Kings, they started worshiping the golden calf again. Why? Well, it's because livestock is the source of their wealth. So maybe they're not that different to you and I, after all. So at the temple, Asaph, he not only sees the destiny of the wicked to be judged by God, but he looks in the mirror and he sees what? He sees his own beastliness. He sees his own sin. He has idolized prosperity. All along, he thought he was the good guy in this story. Plot twist. He's not. See, when he envied the prosperity of the wicked, it showed that he's really no different from them. He's chasing after the same things they are. His envy revealed his idols. Now, friends, has your envy revealed the idols in your life? Maybe you've been envying that friend who's just bought a house in Remiera. Or maybe you're envying that couple that went on that overseas holiday in Europe. Has prosperity and comfort become the idol in your life? 
See, another way to identify the idols in our life is to ask ourselves, what are we getting bitter about? Look how Asaph expresses his bitterness in verse 13. He says, did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? See, he whispered that. He didn't dare to say that out loud, and you and I, we don't dare to say it out loud either. But honestly, though, how often are we deep down thinking about it? See, that's exactly what I was thinking when I was bitter at God for being single. I was like, God, I've been so good and faithful to you. But you haven't held up to your end of the bargain. Do you see what I've done there when I think like that? When I treat God like that? When I think God owes me because I've been on good behavior, I'm not worshiping him. I'm using him. I'm using him to get to my idol. So often, friends, it's easy for us to treat the almighty God as some kind of glorified vending machine. We exchange our good behavior for his blessings. Don't do that. If you're a Christian here today, it might be good to look in the mirror as Asaph has done. Ask yourself these questions. Ask yourself, do I serve God out of love for God or because I want something from him? How much of my God-given time, money, and energy Am I devoting to the God of prosperity? And how much am I giving to God? Am I giving my leftovers to God? See, as I ask myself these questions, even yesterday, I'm really struggling with this money thing. Um, the main thing is actually this. <laughs> the, main, the, the main breadwinner of our family is about to go on maternity leave. And so what I'm doing yesterday, actually, was I was looking at our budget. I'm like, oh, what can I cut? And you know what jumped out at me first? It's that giving number. There's a part of me that says, hey, I've already given up my career. I've made the sacrifice. I'm in ministry now. Maybe I can give a little bit less of my money because I have less of it now. Why do I do that? See, Jesus didn't give up his comfort to save me. He gave up his everything. So why do I still hold so much from him? Friends, I need to repent. I really do. But if I may be so bold, maybe you need to. Maybe you need to also take some time today, after the service, grab a friend, pray together, repent. See, Asaph sees us own beastliness as he looks into the mirror and then he confesses his sin towards God and then we approach perhaps the most comforting word in this whole psalm it's that three letter word yet in verse 23 let's have a read of it from verse 22 I was stupid and I didn't understand I was an unthinking animal toward you yet I am always with you you hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you take me up in glory. So Asaph has seen that God is coming to judge the wicked because of their sin. But he's just seen his own sin. He's just seen he is not in the clear, not at all. And yet, yet God does not send him to the same destiny as the wicked. Why is that? How does he even know that? To answer that question, we need to kind of Look back at what is the turning point in Asaph's story. Do you remember? It's at verse 17. 
when he entered God's sanctuary. What exactly happened there? Asaph doesn't actually tell us anything, so we can make guesses, I guess. Um, maybe you think something supernatural happened. God spoke to him. God appeared to him in a dream or a vision. I'm more inclined to think because he didn't say anything, it's more likely that's not that supernatural. It's probably something quite ordinary. Do you also notice that he says the turning point is not when he stayed in the temple, it's when he entered the temple. So here's my best guess, okay? Not not necessarily true. But my best guess is this. Asaph goes into the temple. What's the first thing he sees? He sees animals being sacrificed on the altar. He sees the animals' throats being slit, the blood drain away from them, their bodies full lifeless. And what is he reminded of? The penalty of sin is death. He realizes that he has sinned against God. He deserves death. He has just seen he is an animal. He should be like all these other animals being slaughtered. But by God's grace, he does not die. Another animal dies in his place. So his relationship with God is not dependent on his good behavior. It's dependent on God's grace, dependent on the atonement that God provides. That's what you had to do back then. If you've, if you've sinned, you've got to go kill an animal, slaughter it, so that your sins may be atoned. But we, you and I, we have something much better than that, don't we? We have Jesus. We don't have to slaughter animals anymore because Jesus, he was the ultimate sacrifice that once for all took away all of sin for us. You see, he is called the Lamb of God because every other animal in the Old Testament that has was slaughtered, all of it, all of them were pointing forward towards this one true sacrifice. The book of Hebrews tells us this. The book of Hebrews says that no animal in the Old Testament really took away sin. See, no amount of animal blood can pay the cost of human sin. It really took nothing less than the death of the Son of God to pay the cost of our sins. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12 says this, He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained an eternal redemption. Jesus died so that you and I, who believe in Jesus, we can be forgiven and reconciled to God. God's justice completely satisfied. We live by grace. Isn't it just the greatest comfort that you and I, we live by grace? And it's not just the first day we were believed that we were saved by grace. No, it's from the day we believe to the day we go into God's glory. God's grace holds on to us. He carries us. He guides us the entire way from beastliness all the way to glory. So Asaph sees, even though he's a beast, God is transforming him bit by bit from one degree of glory to another till he sees God face to face. So Asaph is confident. But a question we have to ask is, what is this glory? What is this glorious destination? We have just seen that the destiny of the wicked is to be judged by God, but what is the destiny of those who trust in God? Let's have a look at perhaps what's the most famous part of this psalm, verses 25 and 26. 
Asaph says this, Who do I have in heaven but you? I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. So Asaph claims he may lose out on everything in all of heaven and earth, just about everything. But God is his portion. God is his destiny. What does it mean that God is our portion? See, in the Old Testament, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and then finally they came into the promised land, the land of Canaan, God divided the land up into 12 pieces. To each of the 12 tribes, he gave a piece of the land as their portion and their inheritance. But to the Levites, to this one special tribe, he said, you're not going to get any land. I am your portion. I am your inheritance. Friends, I wonder if you think, do you think that Levites drew the short straw here? Do you think they were kind of like, oh man, I was really hoping that we'd get Remiera? <laughs> See, Asaph didn't, God didn't say to the Levites, guys, for your troubles, I'm going to make sure you're going to get a lot more treasure in heaven, much more land in heaven, better. No, he says, I am your portion. I am your treasure. I think our issue is this. Often, we like to think that we want kind of God and money. We want God and house. God and the New Zealand dream. Wouldn't that be better? Because, you know, if you count it up, if you do some mathematics or accounting, you kind of go, God plus uh, something must be greater than God himself. Right? That's not how Paul did his math, is it? He said, I count all things as garbage that I may gain Christ. Friends, what if the gift that's being held out to you, that's being offered to you is so great that you need to grab hold of it with both hands, not just one. The Levites didn't draw the short straw and neither did you if your hope is in Jesus. Notice finally also, Asaph says something interesting. He says, God is his portion forever. What does he mean by that? I think this is what he means. He means when that rich guy, when that guy, wicked guy that he's been envying, when that guy dies, he's not going to take anything to the grave. He's going to be, he's going to have nothing. He's going to be nothing. But when Asaph dies, God remains as his portion. Because God's bond with him does not terminate at death. See how confident Asaph is. He says, even after his flesh and his heart fails, even after he dies and his heart stops beating, God is the strength of his heart and his portion forever, so his heart will beat again. Because God will not surrender him to death. See, Asaph's one of these Old Testament faithful who kind of fumbled around in the dark, right? And he kind of grabbed hold of something solid. He grabbed hold of the hope of resurrection. Even though it was so murky back then, it was not that clear. See, another person who sort of fumbled around in the dark was Job. He also struggled with the same issues of injustice, of suffering. See what he says in Job chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. He says this, I know that my Redeemer lives 
And at the end, he will stand on the dust. Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him and not as a stranger. My heart longs within me. See, Job was so convinced that after the dust is settled, his Redeemer lives. And because his Redeemer lives, he believes in a resurrection after even his skin is destroyed. He doesn't know how. He doesn't know it's through Jesus. But he's so sure that he will gain a new body and a new pair of eyes to be able to see God. And on that day when he will look at God, his maker, his redeemer, face to face for the first time, God will not be a stranger. His heart aches within him. Now both Asaph and Job, they fumbled around in the dark. But we don't have to fumble around in the dark, do we? Nothing could be clearer. The Christian hope is a hope of resurrection. We believe not just Jesus died for our sins on the cross. We believe on the third day, he rose from the dead. And those of us, we who believe in Jesus, we know that one day, one day after our skin is destroyed, Jesus will raise us up again. And we will see God face to face and we will enjoy his presence forever. Friends, that is the ultimate destination. That is the portion that God is holding out to you. So don't idolize the New Zealand dream. And if people, when you see people around you in the world who are enjoying all kinds of prosperity, know that in Jesus, your portion is better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so great greater than all of heaven and earth put together. Father, we are so stupid. We are like the stupid animal that chase after money, chase after fame. We chase after all these little things. Thank you for your patience towards us. Thank you for your grace holding on to us, not casting us away. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus so that it's not our good behavior that gets us into your presence. Jesus died. So we know the debt is paid. The promise is real. The gift is ours for free. Help us, Lord, to trust in that. Help us to cling to that so that we may truly see you face to face. Father, we thank you that not only are you our portion, but we are yours. We are your inheritance. And we pray that you help us, send us out into the world on mission so that we can see more and more people come to your son and receive forgiveness. So that the lamb may receive the full reward of his suffering. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.